Say taco and then say tree. Taco tree. They're very different sounds. Taco tree, tree, tree. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on. Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. John, it's your turn to choose a story. What have you picked for us? I picked the story, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? by Joyce Carol Oates. All right, let's hear it. One Sunday, Connie got up at 11. None of them bothered with church and washed her hair so that it could dry all day long in the sun. Her parents and sister were going to a barbecue at an aunt's house, and Connie said no, she wasn't interested, rolling her eyes to let her mother know just what she thought of it. Stay home alone then, her mother said sharply. Connie sat out back in the lawn chair and watched them drive away, her father quiet and bald, hunched around so that he could back the car out, her mother with a look that was still angry and not at all softened through the windshield. And in the back seat, poor old June, all dressed up as if she didn't know what a barbecue was, with all the running, yelling kids and the flies. Connie sat with her eyes closed in the sun, dreaming and dazed with the warmth about her, as if this were a kind of love, the caresses of love, and her mind slipped over onto thoughts of the boy she had been with the night before, and how nice he had been, how sweet it always was. Not the way someone like June would suppose, but sweet, gentle, the way it was in movies and promised in songs. And when she opened her eyes, she hardly knew where she was. The backyard ran off into weeds and a fence line of trees, and behind it, the sky was perfectly blue and still. The asbestos ranch house that was now three years old startled her. It looked small. She shook her head as if to get awake. It was too hot. She went inside the house and turned on the radio to drown out the quiet. She sat on the edge of her bed barefoot and listened for an hour and a half to a program called XYZ Sunday Jamboree. Record after record of hard, fast, shrieking songs she sang along with, interspersed by exclamations from Bobby King. And look here, you girls at Napoleon's. Son and Charlie want you to pay real close attention to this song coming up. And Connie paid close attention herself, bathed in a glow of slow-pulsed joy that seemed to rise mysteriously out of the music itself and lay languidly about the airless little room, breathed in and breathed out with each gentle rise and fall of her chest. After a while, she heard a car coming up the drive. She sat up at once, startled, because it couldn't be her father so soon. The gravel kept crunching all the way in from the road. The driveway was long, and Connie ran to the window. It was a car she didn't know. It was an open jalopy, painted a bright gold that caught the sun opaquely. Her heart began to pound, and her fingers snatched at her hair, checking it, and she whispered, Christ, Christ, wondering how bad she looked. The car came to a stop at the side door, and the horn sounded four short taps, as if this were a signal Connie knew. She went into the kitchen and approached the door slowly, then hung out the screen door, her bare toes curling down off the step. There were two boys in the car, and now she recognized the driver. He had shaggy, shabby black hair that looked crazy as a wig, and he was grinning at her. I ain't late, am I? He said. Who the hell do you think you are? Connie said. Told you I'd be out, didn't I? I don't even know who you are. She spoke sullenly, careful to show no interest or pleasure, and he spoke in a fast, bright monotone. Connie looked past him to the other boy, taking her time. He had fair brown hair with a lock that fell onto his forehead. His sideburns gave him a fierce, embarrassed look, but so far he hadn't even bothered to glance at her. Both boys wore sunglasses. The driver's glasses were metallic and mirrored everything in miniature. You want to come for a ride, he said. Connie smirked and let her hair fall loose over one shoulder. Don't you like my car? New paint job. Bobby said, hey, what? You're cute. She pretended to fidget, chasing flies away from the door. It's a good section to read, too, because it kind of caps off the intro that we get, which is 
kind of explaining the whole dynamic of the family before you launch into this scene that ends up being the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Good choice. <laughs> I thought it introduced the or it showed the character pretty well and uh, the situation that's developed. So what made you pick this one? This story is really famous and it's in every anthology you'd ever pick up. And uh, I thought I had read it a long time ago, but apparently I didn't. And I pulled a Christine and I just kind of sent it to you without rereading it. <laughs> it worked out. Yeah, it worked My out. My method is tried and true. <laughs> I finally read it the other day. I was like, oh, I don't, I don't, I haven't never read this story. What's going on? <laughs> there was something like really familiar about it though. Just all the tension in this piece. So I felt like that uh, Flannery O'Connor we did. Yeah. Yeah. I'm probably thinking of that story just because I'm thinking about the podcast, but it felt like it was also from a similar era. This, I think I looked it up today. So I read it twice. And the second time I read it, I actually decided to do some (laughs) research. This was written in 1966, or at least it was published in 66. That sounds right. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to remember the Flannery O'Connor one, when that was set, but they both seem like similar times and that they're like innocent times, simpler times, obviously pre-cell phones when both these things would have been easily avoided. (laughs) That's right. But I had to look up the the timeline because when uh, she introduces the character at the very beginning, she describes like the ballet flats and the bracelets. And I was like, this is 2021, right? I mean, we're still, (laughs) these are still the same girls and like they have the same concerns when they're walking around the mall. It felt classic in that way, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's teenage girls. Also a classic in the sense, well, timeless in the sense that uh, this is still, even with cell phones, a very dangerous situation for a teenage girl to find herself in. That could probably still happen, right? Older men show up unannounced and what are you going to do? Yeah. So what did you like about it? The thing you mentioned, the tension I liked. I like the language. There's a lot of good language in here. You kind of get used to this kind of style of short sentences and like simple, but she really knows how to put a sentence together. She got some rolling, long, kind of complicated sentences that just flow by. You don't even notice how long they are. Yeah. Also just the simplicity of it. It's just one thing. Yeah, exactly. It's an interesting story to kind of show you the two ways that she writes, you know, because she's doing this great job with the prose and you mentioned like the longer sentences, but then by the time we get into the scene, that's going to be the rest of the story. It really is just like dialogue driven and there's like a really good kind of ping pong back and forth that they're doing. The other thing that she does really well with this dialogue is the dialect. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we get questions, I think, about this a lot in our group, and I never know how to answer it except to say that if you're asking us how to do dialect, you probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good That's good advice. Yeah, because a lot of times people are trying to like impersonate more than capture something that they're familiar with. Sometimes people will try to write dialect, and I almost always say something about it. And I've tried to tailor my comments like in recent years, not to point out that I think that they're doing it wrong, but to point out that (laughs) another reader might think that they're doing it wrong or like inauthentically. And I'm never of the like demographic that can tell you whether or not it's right. And all I ever tell these people now is like, just be careful because you're going to get questions about how well you can do this, no matter who you are, if you're writing from a different perspective. And more often than not, it's probably safer not to do it. And this is also why there's like sensitivity readers for people who like with the best interests in mind want to capture it as well as they can, but know that they probably aren't the best person to do it. This, of course, like I'm not from this place. I'm not from this time, but Joyce Carol Oates is a writer that, you know, you feel like you're an expert 
hands. You know that you're an expert hand. So part of you is just believing it because of who she is. But also, I I think she's who she is because she probably knows her characters better than the average fiction writer, you know? So she's kind of earned her ability to write that. And I don't know her background. Maybe she's from a place where they all spoke like this, you know? I think the main thing for people who are writing dialects is the mistake I often feel like I see is they're not trying to write a dialect that they know. They're trying to write a dialect that they've seen in a movie. And uh, you can't do it if you don't know it. You have to know it. You have to study it. If you didn't grow up with it, then you really have to pay attention to someone, the way they talk. I think when Joyce Carol Oates is writing this, she probably just hears it in her head. Right. And writes it down the way she hears it. That's the other thing that we get questions about her that I usually comment on is less about like whether or not this dialect has been authentically captured and more about how, like you said, the author has chosen to portray it. I'm looking at a paragraph right now where it's like, can't you read it? And she has C-A-N apostrophe T-C-H-A. That like works for me in this situation. But if every time they said can't, it was written that way, it might trip me up. And it might be the kind of stuff that becomes bothersome to actually read. And if you've done a good job of capturing the dialect early on, or more importantly, the character, because there's so many stories that like are not written with this heavy dialect where you're imposing it on the character, you're reading it that way and you're picturing and hearing it that way anyway, then you don't need to like hold our hand and do it every time. You've already kind of set the tone and I'm filling in the blanks almost. Yeah, that can't ya. Nobody says can't ya. They always say can't ya, right? So she chose to spell it that way to highlight it, right? Right. So if you highlight the correct words and the correct usage at the correct time, you do more for my experience reading dialect than you would if you did it every single time with every word. And the other thing about these characters is they're not just saying words differently or pronouncing words differently. It's also in like the way their sentences are constructed. So another line I'm looking at, and you can do this with every line, says, hey, Ellie's got a radio, see? <laughs> see? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really common. It's probably like high on the list of things that we see when it comes to dialect, but it works. It's really effective. My favorite part about this story is the tension. And the first time I read this was a couple weeks ago. And I I read it again today. And it wasn't as fun today. You liked it better the first time? Yeah, because I was like on the edge of my seat the first time waiting for something horrific to happen. And I didn't even remember how it ended when I reread it. And I think that's kind of the point that what's best about this is not how it ends, but that you're wondering how it will end while reading it. I talk about this all the time, but people think that the most important part of a story is the plot but it's really not. It's like the experience of making that plot real. And I think that's what's so well done here. The whole time I'm stressed. I'm thinking through all the possibilities like she is and I'm wondering what's going to happen. And I'm reading every sentence, like watching these power dynamics kind of slightly shift and watching her gears turn and kind of trying to think two steps ahead. The, the, The whole experience of reading it was great. And I think because it's dialogue heavy, you can also picture how this would play out on film, right? This would be a 15 minute minute scene in a movie this would be a chunk of a film yeah it'd be long yeah and i think the key to why that tension builds so slowly and so thoroughly without like uh kind of circling back on itself or getting repetitive is because there are all these moments where the power dynamic kind of shifts or where we have the one main guy arnold friend kind of directing the conversation and then his friend will chime in and kind of shift away and then connie will do something or we'll get in her head for a second and she'll think like 
like, I'm going to go do this. And it keeps you kind of guessing, right? You're not in one character's, there's not one character in control throughout. There's all these moments where you think like something has changed and that's what it seems like keeps it pretty interesting. Yeah, I was, I didn't pay attention to it for this story, but I was noticing that there was some interesting stuff going on with point of view here. It was in Connie's point of view, more or less. But it wasn't quite in Connie's point of view. It didn't jump to the other characters, for example, but it, it always stayed with her, but it wasn't always from her point of view. Sometimes it was talking about her separately. And I think like from the outside of her, and right. I think that lends to what you're talking about. Yeah. I'm going to try to find a section that kind of. Okay. So here's a paragraph like of prose kind of like in the middle of this dialogue, but it says. It's at the very end, actually. So she has picked up the phone at this point with the intention of calling someone. I forget if she's trying to call 911, if that's a thing. And he tells her to put it down. And he says, that's a good girl. Now you come outside. And it says she was hollow with what had been fear, but what was now just an emptiness, all that screaming had blasted it out of her. So we get these little moments where you get to see into her head. And before the next sentence, she describes how she's sitting. It says she sat one leg cramped under her and deep inside her brain was something like a pinpoint of light that kept going and would not let her relax. But before she even describes like how she's kind of sitting there, like you can sense that she's defeated. Like she's hollow. The screaming blasted it out of her. Like you, you could tell she's slumped and we're just getting just enough of what's going on in her brain to see that this is the moment when she's giving up, like she's lost the power. You described your experience as you liked it better the first time you read it than the second. And yeah. my experience was kind of the opposite. I mean, I, I enjoyed the reading well enough, but I was a little uh, confused is the wrong word, but uncertain maybe about what her motives were. Like by the time I got to the ending and she wandered out of the house and went with him, you know, you kind of can guess why she might've done it, but I wanted to know, I wanted it to be more clear. So when I read it the second time, I was paying more attention to that. And I liked it better because I noticed I, I could see it more clearly why she was doing what she did, maybe because I was paying attention to it. This paragraph is one of those moments that really helped clarify that because she'd been right. resisting and resisting and resisting. And finally, this was like a breaking point. This was like, she can't resist anymore. Right. Because there's a, you know, when, when, she, when he first gets there, she says, you two better leave. We ain't leaving until you come with us. Like hell I am. There's no way she's walking out that door. He has to wear her down. And he finally does, obviously. Yeah, I got the sense that, I mean, she could go willingly or they could bust in. Whatever they were going to do, they were going to do at that point. She had exhausted all of her tools, I guess. I mean, she just had the phone and like nobody was paying attention on this street, apparently. I didn't get a great sense of what kind of a neighborhood this was. Like, can you see your neighbor's dining room table from your living room? Or is there an acre? She said uh, it was a really, really long driveway. And remember, she's sitting out on that lawn chair and she can see all the way to the trees. And then there's a new okay ranch house that hadn't been there before that startled her. My impression was it was kind of a ex-urban kind of place somewhere in the country or something. That makes sense. I mean, I like I said, I didn't get a clear picture of the neighborhood, but I knew that it was no one was coming to her help, whether or not it was yeah. apathy or remoteness. Yeah. And I've, my feeling of what finally broke her was when he started, uh, Arnold Friend said, uh, you're coming with us. Otherwise, your family is going to come home and then everyone's going to die. And she was like, well, I don't want everyone to die. Yeah, that was that was a thing. Like from the very beginning, he was very clear that he knew where her family was that day and how many of them there were and what they were doing. So that wasn't like an empty threat by the time he said, listen, if you don't come with me now, I'll just go kill them all picnic and it became like more and more clear that she wasn't going to be able to do anything 
when I started this story, I wasn't sure if it was going to be like the Flannery O'Connor one where we get to see the massacre, right? Where we get to see like all the violence of the scene play out. So when I was reading it, I was anxious for that part, wondering if it was going to happen or, I mean, not in a good way. I was waiting for something horrific and it didn't happen. I'm not saying I was disappointed by it. I like the way it ended because we don't need to see the graphic detail. We just need to know whether or not it ends up happening. And that's what I was reading for. And so the second time I read it, I kind of remembered that there wasn't some graphic scene you know i wasn't gonna read to a like thorough conclusion i remembered when i started again that it all takes place in the driveway and it's all this back and forth it's like the story is the power play it's not what happens like that was always gonna happen but it's how she tries to fight it there's probably you know scholarly critics who have a million themes that they want to pull out from this but I don't even care about those. Nah. It was just such a good read. I mean, this is probably in tons of feminist literature books and stuff. And I get that and I appreciate it. But (laughs) I was reading it and I was stressed. I was reading it like a thriller, you know? My mom would read it and be like sad for this girl the whole time without enjoying the awesome fiction that is at play. Well, what else did you like about this one? I mean, we kind of covered it. There's it's not much. It's a pretty simple story. Yeah. Then do you have a takeaway? Uh, my takeaway was uh, basically about motivation. Because when I first read it, I wasn't clear about her motivation, why she stepped out of the house. I mean, obviously, in rereading, there's like lines like, uh, if you don't come out, we're going to wait till your people come home. And then they're all going to get it. And stuff like that, that I picked up on more in the second reading. So, you know, it's kind of my fault that I didn't see that the first time I read it through. But I was thinking about cat person. Kristen Rupenian. Yeah. And how when we read that we for the podcast, we talked about motives and like how her shifting motives are always clear. Like every time she does something, you know exactly why she's doing it. Whereas in this story, it's not stated clearly. You can in, you can infer it, but I don't there's never a moment where the narrative says Connie looked at him and realized she didn't want her family to die. So she decided to walk out that door, right? Yeah. But you you know that that's why she did it, more or right. less. You're kind of guessing that's probably why she did it. So my takeaway is just how to present motives for the reader so the reader can pick up on why characters are acting on things you know you can do it in that way of stating it like cat person or you can let it kind of be unsaid but give all the necessary clues but as long i think it's important that you should know otherwise there's a lot of dissatisfaction potential dissatisfaction in a story if you're not sure why the character is doing what they're doing right i know that you're talking about the character's motivation because we talk all the time about stories being ones in which the characters have agency right this is not something that's happening to her this is something that she's making decisions with and that's what makes it a story or else the story would be two men showed up busted in and took her right yeah Then the story is about them. It's not about her. Yeah. And I want to make it clear too that like in this situation, it's not as if she has to have a motive for why she wants to go out and get raped. (laughs) It's more like you said, why does she want to walk like out the front door? That is not what I meant. (laughs) Well, I think the reason I'm mentioning that is because I think for this story, because we're not in her head and because this is not cat person, we're not getting the play-by-play of her mental state. The reason why we still are able to arrive at that conclusion is because we've been given all the other potential options throughout this extended dialogue. She tried 911. She tried just backing away. She tried closing the door. She tried locking it. She tried being nice. She tried being mean. And 
we're seeing all the options kind of ticking off the box, right? And it's like, she's got agency in that she's trying these things. But I think it's a story about power play because they're taking each option away from her, right? She's trying them all. She's a character with agency and she's making decisions. But for me, by the time she kind of slumps her shoulders and walks out, in my mind, that was that was the last thing she was going to do other than sit there and let them bust in. The, oh, the yeah. end result was the same. Yes. You know? Like in all of her other choices, there might have been a different result. But at the very end, it's either physically walk out or get dragged out. I mean, the conclusion's the same with that, right? When she's trying to dial 911, she might be successful or she might, you know, get beaten. But there's two options there. And here at the end, there's, I mean, do you want to walk out on your own two feet or do you want to be dragged? So we're still aware that she's making decision. I guess is my point. And so it's a more subtle way of doing it. It's not like cat person where it's like, I didn't text him back. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like I said, this is, it's all there. I just, you know, when I read it because it wasn't stated, I wasn't doing yeah. the work kind of thinking about it, you know? Okay, sure. Yeah. But rereading it, I'm like, oh, well, there it is. It's all there. <laughs> so that's why my takeaway is, you know, it's not, this story has no motivations and therefore we need to make sure our stories do. It's look at the way these were done. This was kind of done in a really understated way. It's kind of nicely done that way. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think a less experienced writer might have not given this character any agency in terms of even making those decisions along the way, right? Yes. Okay, so my only takeaway is like this tension was so well done. And like I said, I'm edge of my seat, but I'm also reading it and thinking this is a pretty long scene. <laughs> and especially the second time reading it, I'm like, man, you're just scrolling and scrolling on the website and it's just a lot. But I, like I said, I read it so quickly and I enjoyed all of it that my takeaway is kind of like when we build tension in our own pieces, I think we convince ourselves that tension has to also move quickly somehow. But tension is like a slow build and tension only gets better the longer you draw it out. The tension is not about what happens, right? It's not about what happens at the end. It's about what could happen. And so we're seeing every potential possibility of like, I could move into this back room or he could say that or I could get rude. And this could have been three paragraphs. It could have been back and forth. She could have like decided to call 911 very quickly, right? And a different writer might think, wow, wasn't that tense? It's like, yeah, it was tense, but I didn't get to digest it. I didn't get to let my mind wander in terms of what this could lead to. And I think that's why I was reading it so quickly was because I was like begging for the conclusion. I'm like, what is going to happen here? You know, instead of like a scene where you can see it on the page and the chapter ends or like a scene in a movie and you know, there's 20 minutes left or something like the next time I tell myself I'm going to write something tense or exciting or that it's going to build to something I'm going to tell myself to slow down and just linger in the what might happen moment a lot longer like longer than you think you should you know I think we get uncomfortable or we think that our readers don't have the patience or the attention span and that's only true if you're doing a terrible job at it so if you slow down I think you can do something like this I think that works for um, not merely tension, but other kinds of emotion too, is if you let the story sit in it longer than, you know, a lot of modern culture is like, oh yeah, emotions, oh, get them away, get them away. But maybe in the in fiction, like part of the point of fiction is, is the emotional impact of it. And sometimes it's best to just let that sit for a while and like linger in it, let it stew and grow and develop. And um, the more time you can spend there uh, through the prose, through the situation, the uh, better the effect is going to wind up. Not every emotion, but for some of those like tension and uh, that kind of thing. Right. 
Not everything calls for it, but if you have a story and the premise is something as serious as this, I mean, for this, the whole story is the tension, but if it had been a scene, it's as important and effective, so very good. Well, thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our monthly newsletter at our website, NaplesWritersWorkshop.com. And for daily writing tips, industry news, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop.